I've had a few impatience days, but to be honest, yeah, nothing compares to that first. One night, just something in my head like kind of snapped. And I was like, I'm not going to do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. I said I needed a cigarette and they let me out. And then I, I ran and made my way to this, this bridge and went onto the edge. And there was this young guy walking past. And yeah, I just find myself walking over. We start to speak and because he told me he wanted to take his life and yeah, very quickly I, f- I felt this like just wave of like responsibility to just be there. Welcome to the Hurt to Healing podcast with me, Pandora Morris. I've been fighting an uphill battle with my mental health for many years, and it's only now that I've started to see some glimmers of light. As part of my own recovery, I've made it my mission to support as many of you as possible on your own healing journey by sharing conversations that are more honest and more raw than ever before. I'll be speaking to some wonderful people from all walks of life who will open up about their own invisible struggles in the hope that it will provide a bit of solace and comfort for some of you. The Hurt to Healing podcast is proud to partner with Shout, the UK's first free, confidential, 24-7 tech support service. So if you're struggling to cope and need mental health support, please text SHOUT, S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. I am thrilled to be joined by not one, but two wonderful men for today's episode. Johnny Benjamin and Neil Laban first met in early 2008, when Neil approached Johnny, who was sitting on the edge of Waterloo Bridge, and asked if he was all right. The conversation that followed changed their lives forever. Fast forward 14 years, and a huge social media campaign later, and the two are not only great friends, but work together to improve the public's understanding of mental health and to champion suicide prevention. Their story proves the role we can all play in helping each other and has helped to eradicate the stigma that surrounds schizophrenia and suicide. By bravely sharing their story, they have opened doors for so many others to do the same. I'm so thrilled to be talking to them both today and to hear about how that day changed both their lives. This conversation really struck a chord with me. It's powerful, inspiring, and proves that we can have faith in humanity. I'm going to start by asking Johnny a question. So Johnny, please, can you tell me about your mental health struggles and how they began and when you were diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder? My mental health issues started really young. My parents started noticing that, I don't know, something just wasn't quite right around the age of like three, four, which I know it's young, but yeah. Uh, I was having like these night terrors, uh, like these really horrible, vivid like nightmares that came to life. And then I started seeing a child psychologist when I was five. Uh, I mean, I didn't really understand any of it, obviously. And we didn't talk about it as like a family because, well, no one did. This was like the early 90s and I don't know, it was kind of a taboo. So I didn't understand any of it, but... I went through school and uh, never fitted in, just always felt really different. But I I don't know, I kept my head down and got through it. But yeah, it was in my mid-teens, I'd say, that like things got really, really, really difficult. I, again, I didn't understand any of it. Uh, I just, we didn't talk about it at school. We didn't talk about it at university. So I just thought it was sort of crazy. I just tried to conceal it and, and mask it all. And I did try like secretly to get help from doctors and 
was put on different antidepressants for like my low mood, but I just started spiraling out of control, particularly when I went off to university. Yeah, I started to do things like self-harm and misuse alcohol. And <laughs> I really don't know how I got through it looking back, particularly those l- late teenage years. I, I just don't know. But anyway, I, I well, I, I didn't get through it in the end. I had a, a breakdown. I had what we call a psychotic episode where I felt like I was possessed Ended up on the streets, like screaming and shouting and completely just out of control, not with it. And that's when I was given my diagnosis of, of schizoaffective disorder and put into a psychiatric hospital. And um, that's when life just completely changed for me. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. I'd love for you to tell us about schizoaffective disorder, how it manifests itself and what behaviors it results in so schizoaffective disorder i guess is this combination of like schizophrenia and bipolar but for me it's always just been more depression i basically had a number of different psychotic episodes i basically just kind (laughs) of completely lose touch with reality that manifests in like i think that i'm being watched by cameras i've had a few instances where (laughs) I thought I was on the Truman Show, you know, the the film, the Truman Show. It's quite common, you know, I, I didn't realize, but there's something called the Truman Delusion where completely like you just believe that you're on this TV show and everyone's fake and all the cameras are watching you and everywhere you go. And um, yeah, it's kind of scary how you can 100% believe this other worlds. And then obviously I have to somehow get myself out of that psychotic episode so I usually go into hospital given those sleeping pills and sleep for days and it's really horrible uh, to have to experience that but not just for me for like people around me family friends it's really difficult but you know on a positive I have a really good psychiatrist now really good I don't know I try and manage it as best as I can I try and stop myself from getting to those points where I have a psychotic episodes don't always manage it but yeah I guess I'm a little bit more in control I think now of it uh not in complete control because I don't think I ever can be but yeah I'm in a bit more more control I'm really interested to know how you can identify that you're going down that slope of getting yourself into a psychotic episode how what are the warning signs and the red flags that appear so lack of sleep insomnia is one uh if i don't get my sleep then um my brain just starts going wild and alcohol for me like when i'm drinking too much that's a warning sign anyway but that's a possibility when i drink too much not just in one night i mean i mean like when it's like continuous that's when i can again slip into a psychotic episode stress is another one when i don't manage the stress that comes with life stuff like emails when i start like Everything has to be in symmetry in my emails, like the sentence, one sentence has to match the next sentence, like in terms of words and the punctuation. And there's got to be a certain number of exclamation marks when everything becomes super controlled. I know that I'm starting to like slide and slip into psychosis. Paranoia is is another one when I start feeling like people are watching me or watching my phone, my messages, when I'm paranoid about other people maybe even family or friends unfortunately I don't always stop it 
I'm get, I think I'm getting better. But um, yeah, I have to catch myself by a certain point. Do you know what I mean? Before I spiral. And yeah, as you say, when when I completely <laughs> go into a psychotic episode, then that's it. I'm sort of gone and it's horrible. So how can you manage it? What can you do in those instances? Do you just have to fight the rigidity of it. So when you say about the emails and having to put a certain number of exclamation marks or matching the length of the sentences, do you have to purposefully ensure that you don't indulge in what your brain, as it were, your sick brain wants you to do? Or do you have to then go and seek external help and engage the in treatment or does a therapist help? Or is it really what you can do yourself? Do you have your own toolbox? A bit of both, really. I think I really try now to take a proper break. And I don't just mean like an hour. I mean like a day, days, weeks, if I need to, months even. I just know I just have to just get away from stuff for a period. But then also, yeah, I definitely, in terms of support, I have something called CFT, which is uh, compassion-focused therapy. And um, I'm really lucky. My therapist, Charlie, is is amazing. And it's just so helpful to have someone there that uh, doesn't judge and really kind of gets it but then also will help bring me back to like reality it's um everyone needs someone like that that has psychosis or uh, you know other mental health challenges someone to like really just gently and compassionately guide you back I'd love you to talk a bit about your experience of inpatient treatment when you're in your 20s and what led you to Waterloo Bridge yeah <laughs> inpatient stays I've had a few inpatient stays but to be honest yeah nothing compares to that first inpatient stay actually when I think back because it was so new and terrifying and uh, I was admitted when I was 20 and yeah given this diagnosis schizoaffective disorder and it was just hell really I was put onto like the suicide ward and I stayed there for a month before I actually ran away. Somehow, like, every day got worse. Didn't think it could get any worse, but just somehow it just, the feeling of not getting better and this bleakness and despair. And I stayed there for a month and then I just got to a point where one night just something in my head kind of snapped. And I was like, I'm not going to do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. It is impossible. I can't live like this. So, yeah, that's when I made the decision that night to run away from the hospital the next morning and unfortunately go to Bridge and that would be it. There was nothing else that I could do. So, yeah, the next morning came and I said I needed a cigarette and they let me out and then I, I ran as fast as I could and made my way to this this bridge and went onto the edge and... um Thankfully for me, obviously, um, there was this young guy walking past and came and stood next to me and, yeah, started to try and engage with me. So, Neil, I'd love to bring you into the conversation and ask you what went through your head when you saw Johnny standing on the edge of the bridge. I guess for context, that that morning, like in that snapshot in time, I was... 13 years younger, early mid 20s, and just started a career in personal training. So, I had my first job as a fitness instructor in Covent Garden in London. So, I find myself walking to work uh, over Waterloo Bridge to get into Covent Garden on this Monday morning. 
there's external factors going on, which obviously contribute to anybody's, I guess, how you act on the day. So those external factors were like one was like the weather. It was freezing cold and everybody was dressed in a winter's coat that morning. Johnny, at that point, a stranger wasn't. So sitting on the bridge, when I saw him in you know, just jeans and T-shirt, something's wrong. Aside from the fact he's sitting on the railings of a bridge looking over the Thames, Honestly, for a split second, I was thinking, like, is this guy showing off? Where's his friends? Who's got the camera? You know, because the brain works like that. You, 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 f- you try and figure things out really quickly. And I guess maybe even trying to figure out if I can just keep walking by, like, because we can all be very selfish and try and figure out reasons why we don't have to intervene. So it's more a fact of kind of like um, process of, of elimination because there, there's no knowledge or education about like what a mental health episode looks like. I hadn't encountered one, hadn't been anywhere near through what Johnny had, had gone through by any stretch of the imagination. So, yeah, like it's all guesswork. And very, very quickly, it's like, no, okay, it has to be what I think it is. And yeah, I just find myself walking over, making this introduction. You know, why are you sitting on a bridge? Like, I don't know what else I, I could say in that moment. We start to speak and because he told me he wanted to take his life and very quickly I felt this like just wave of like responsibility to just be there and I guess all the stuff about like you know okay you've got a bit of work and people are looking you know it was it was almost rush hour so it was really really busy but to be honest it was just like being in the moment with Johnny and it didn't take long for like a lot of that to fade away because as we started to talk and he slowly started to engage with me a little bit more. I can't speak for him, but I felt comfortable being next to him, even though he was in this dark place. And, you know, it, it wasn't scary. And I think that's a huge misconception that, like, everybody you might approach in that situation, you know, is going to turn around and act erratically. I could tell he wanted somebody to be there. So I hope that gives a bit of an insight as into, like, what anybody could be thinking as they pass that situation, maybe why anybody could feel they intervene and why people feel like they don't intervene. And Johnny, you've said that Neil said some quite pertinent things to you that really, really resonated. And first of all, I'd like to ask you what those were. There were these things that he said that, I don't know, no one had said before, but also definitely the way that he like listens because... Again, I hadn't been listened to like that before. You know, in the hospital, when I tried to talk about suicidal thoughts and feelings, well, they would, like, give me medication, whereas with Neil on the bridge, he just seemed okay. He would, like, held the space, you know, which, which I hadn't had before. But, yeah, the things he said, I think key thing he said to me was, don't be embarrassed, don't feel embarrassed. And I needed someone to say that, like, so so much because I can't put into words the embarrassment and the the shame about my diagnosis and symptoms and also actually I I haven't mentioned but I was struggling with my sexuality and um, I come from a Jewish family Jewish community and uh, I just couldn't deal with my sexuality at all it just but just for him to say don't be embarrassed and and really mean it it just it really helped just to sort of take some of the weight off my shoulders I think but for me, I think the, the the real key thing he said, which is actually quite simple when I look back, but he said to me, you'll be all right, mate. You know, you'll get through this. 
it's really simple, right? But in the hospital, my psychiatrist wasn't being very optimistic about my my outlook and no one had said to me, you'll, you'll be okay, you'll, you'll get better. It was all very much like, you're really ill, Johnny, you're really unwell, you know, medication, medication, medication. And here was this guy that was just so positive and so like, yeah, human as well about it. I hadn't had a conversation for like a month because it was all in the hospital. And I know I sound very critical, but it's the way that it was. It was all very um, illness and risk and a lot of jargon about my illness and medication. And with Neil, it's just such a human conversation. And there was a lot of hope. And I needed that. I really needed that, like hope. I just, I had no hope left. I think it's really interesting, actually, your point about being treated like a patient. And I think this is often the dynamic that can play out in friendships as well. It's as soon as you're diagnosed or you admit that you've got a vulnerability, people often feel that they can talk down to you and treat you as though you're this patient and you're constantly then in this dysfunctional dynamic whereby you are a victim and you're made to feel less than and you're made to feel disempowered and therefore it almost worsens the illness because of course if like no one treats you like a human being you feel like you can't connect and as we know connection is the opposite of being desperate depressed isolated addicted whatever it is and Neil, you obviously have a lot of emotional intelligence. And I think someone who is able to talk to someone in that situation where the stakes are so high and to remain rational and to be able to have a normal human interaction. And it sounds like you were able to just interact with Johnny on a level that immediately made him feel like here's a person who's actually talking to me as a person rather than as a patient. Did it come naturally or did you consciously think, right, I've got to think about what I'm going to say here. I guess the difference is, right, it counted, you know, like the stakes were high. So you go into this zone where you try and channel some sort of common sense approach and like lose the ego because the ego really is in control of a lot of stuff that comes out of your mouth. We're usually talking about ourselves and people love that. So the best thing to do is just to shut up because, you know, when you're talking, it's usually the ego and it's not about you. It's about the person there. I guess we're trying to feel how I would want to be approached in the situation. I mean, <laughs> you can't go wrong with that old do unto others as you would have done to yourself. And I guess to some degree trying to we're obviously trying to think of ways to like connect but also to empathise, and then to empathise, I guess you've got to get as close as you can to that person's frame of mind. And everything that we've just heard from Johnny, that wasn't in the conversation. Like There was no way he could be as articulate, as coherent, the positive person he is now. Like everything was like monosyllabic answers, long pauses. Why would you keep pushing somebody to talk if they just physically can't talk? That's what's happening at the moment. So um, there just seemed the right moment to say, like, do you want to go for a coffee? And that seemed to be the right point. It was like almost half an hour in. And like I said, we, there was more chemistry. There was more two-way because I wanted to get him to use my phone because he wouldn't at first. I brought that up in the first five minutes. No, that wasn't an option. So I put it back in my pocket. But it felt right to say, like, let's go for a coffee. Let's sit down. And that's where I wanted to get to, to like get him to agree to call somebody. He was a lovely guy, but I didn't want to be there like until, you know, 
five o'clock in the afternoon. Like, you know, I wanted to help him and get on my way and feel good about my deed, you know, not being being honest. So, but I, did, I had no idea what that ending could look like. The only way I knew was like, get him to trust me to call somebody. At that point, he came down from the railings and we were on the bridge and we were about to go for a coffee. The police intervened at that point. A police car like raced up beside us and the doors open. <laughs> he was very quickly handcuffed and put in the back of the police car and arrested and taken away. And yeah, so we didn't get that coffee. First of all, Johnny, you must have felt a bit betrayed. And Neil, you must have also felt a bit bereft because here was this guy who you'd had this prolonged interaction with and whose life you'd essentially saved and suddenly you're ripped apart. Johnny, what went through your head at the time? Were you just not really functioning at that point? And again, we're left feeling quite bereft and quite betrayed by the person that called the police. I think I was just a mess. I was a mess because it happened so quickly. Like it'd been such a calm like you know I'd stepped off onto the pavement and I was there with Neil and about to go for his coffee and then suddenly yeah out of nowhere like police and because I struggled and I resisted so that's why I was restrained and handcuffed and it just all happened so quickly and it wasn't great the the interaction with the police they were really like aggressive to me like why have you run away from the hospital and because then I was sectioned I was taken to the local hospital I was sectioned and that was a whole God, process in itself. So it wasn't until much later on in the day I was taken back to the hospital that I ran away from that I actually had time to like reflect, like, you know, on that interaction on the bridge and for it finally to like impact me because it was sort of, I don't know, a bit chaotic. It had gone from like calm to chaos and it was too much on my head to deal with. And Neil, did you have to give a statement or were you just literally left on the pavement to go about your day? Yeah, I mean, look, honestly, it was just a bit sad because at worst they were I would say (laughs) a bit aggressive given that it was a very cool calm collective situation when they arrived Uh, probably at best they were indifferent about actually spending time with the person who was in a crisis it was really brief I mean like they took a statement from me like on the road while Johnny was in the back of the police car obviously very visibly upset in handcuffs back to the state he was in like half an hour beforehand so the fact that the two police officers were both standing with me, who was, a, you know, a calm member of the public, I don't know, it seems counterintuitive. So that was, that was bizarre. But again, like all this is on like hindsight reflection, but at the time you take it at face value because of that social conditioning, right? Like they're the police, they are in charge you do what they say, you give your statement, you don't really question it. You just assume like that they're doing their safeguarding and they're doing their duty. But yeah, and reflection, and it's not a reflection today. Like obviously we know things are different. So there I am kind of like, well, that was all very weird before work. <laughs> uh, I hadn't even had my coffee yet. So yeah, and then I'm just walking back to work and I'll be in the health club in a couple of minutes, ready to throw my bag down and start a training session. But like I said, yeah, I guess if you're just kind of naturally resilient, you just roll with whatever you feel is in front of you. And it was always a fond memory. Like I I looked at it as a a fond little like personal interaction and um, didn't really share it with anybody, to be honest, over the years, just like close friends, family. 
I just want to take a quick moment to say a big thank you to my wonderful sponsor, Bowdoin. Bowdoin is a British brand that has championed uplifting, eclectic British style since it was founded 31 years ago. Perhaps it's time to add to your collection this autumn with some new knitwear, maybe with a modern twist such as a puff sleeve. I've just indulged in a new ultra soft cashmere, which I can honestly tell you I'll be living in this winter. But what I love most about the brand is that they've always championed women from a variety of different backgrounds and seek to inspire them to enjoy a life well lived, which is exactly what I'm aiming to do with my podcast. Head to Bowden.com to check out their new autumn collection or to their Instagram at Bowden underscore clothing. So you were separated for a number of years and then Johnny, you launched a campaign to find Neil, which was then it got an incredible following on social media and all around the world. Um, and eventually you guys were reunited. First of all, Johnny, what made you want to track Neil down? Well, firstly, just to say I got his name wrong when I launched the campaign. I <laughs> I called the campaign Find Mike because <laughs> the way it ended was so abrupt and like I was in a bit of a state. So I guess I didn't recall his name <laughs> properly. In my In my head, his name was always Mike. So I called this search find Mike, but yeah, I um, obviously wanted to find him. I, I just to say, I I didn't do it on my own. I, I couldn't have done it on my own. I was working with the charity Rethink Mental Illness, the na- nationwide mental health charity, and um, I was working there. And I told them my story, and they they were the ones that were like, "Imagine if you found that guy and said thank you," and they were like, "Let's do this social media campaign." And to be honest, we we did it obviously to find. Mike slash Neil but um we also did it to raise awareness actually of mental illness but also suicide suicide is such a difficult subject to talk about but as we all know we have to talk about it because of the stats every 40 seconds somewhere around the world someone takes their own life which is just so tragic we wanted to get people talking as well as obviously try and find this guy I didn't think that we'd find him because six years had passed I had to wait six years because I had to be in a good place it took a long time to get into a good place. So just the chances of finding him seem really slim, but we launched this social media search and off it went. And they still can't believe actually that found each other because, I mean, what, what are the chances really? So lucky. When you guys met for the first time since the incident on the bridge, what was it like? For me, it was just so many like different emotions and, it was, it was really overwhelming, actually. It was really overwhelming at first when <laughs> it was all being filmed and, you know, there was all these cameras there and I was just overwhelmed by the situation. And when he walked in, I was just overwhelmed, overwhelmed. But then when we sat down and I calmed down, there was just this moment when everything came back into my head. It all pieced into place. And that was, it was a really good feeling. It was really like, this is amazing because I can show you I'm in a much better place and yeah it was really special and Neil how was it for you I was actually really apprehensive leading up to like meeting him after the search (laughs) find Mike that had gone out and you know after seeing it and coming forward and speaking to the charity and then putting us together there was a couple of days after meeting the charity before I got to meet Johnny you know they were filming the whole thing which got later turned into a documentary so yeah they wanted to get the meeting on camera uh so i had a couple of days to kind of research 
who is this Johnny Benjamin guy? So, yeah, I felt like I knew him a little bit. And, like, he talked a lot around the campaign about, like, what that interaction had meant. I get, I, I didn't really think about how profound it was at the time. Certainly the second meeting when we met for the second time and we sat down. It was life-changing in two ways because it was personally inspiring to have somebody tell you everything he's just told you, Pandora. But, like... We're going back now, 2014, so eight or nine years ago, when people just were at the fringe of talking about this. And I still, at that point in my adult life, being like about 30 years old, still hadn't had anybody I know, any male, ever open up to me like that. So it's very, very inspiring. And then secondly, it like changed the trajectory completely by accident of professionally, like us working together. So for that reason, it was a real like moment in life that started from just this like, yeah, sliding doors. Well, what if I hadn't got off the train or been late or my fiance hadn't have seen the Facebook post that her friend shared and she showed it to me and all that stuff hadn't happened. So quite bizarre when you think back. And then can you just tell me a bit about your mental health campaigning? Because I know, Johnny, you've been awarded an MBE and have been very, very active in that space. And together you guys have done a phenomenal amount especially around suicide and trying to destigmatize that and changing the language around that, which I think has also been such a, a poignant thing is that, you know, why do we say someone's committed suicide? It's as though they've kind of committed a crime. Mm. And what have you found to be the most helpful tool in, in helping others? I've been really lucky. I haven't done this on my own. Uh, I couldn't have done it on my own, the, the campaigning work. Like, uh, myself and Neil, we've we've managed to work with so many different mental health charities and, and organisations in our sort of campaigning work. We've done lots of different things, yeah, focusing on suicide, male suicide, focusing on workplaces, focusing on young people, prisons. But there is so much to do. Sometimes, yeah, again, it can be quite overwhelming. Just even the prison sector, God, there's so much work to do in terms of mental health there. So... I feel like we, we've been able to do like little bits here and there. But now, I guess, my big focus is young people. Neil has a particular passion for workplaces. So it kind of like feels like we found our niches. For so many years, I wanted to take everything on. And I still do. That impatient, you know, we need a revolution in like impatient stays. And, but I, I guess I realized I can't do everything. So my big focus is young people. Uh, and we started a charity together in, in 2018 called Beyond. And um, that's my current focus, just trying to get the right support to young people early on, rather than everyone getting to the crisis stage, as, as people do, you know, taking it back to the preventative stage or the early intervention point. That's our big focus. And uh, it's never ending, right? The, the mental health <laughs> campaigning thing, it just... But there's so many more people doing it now. And with our charity, we have a youth board and we work together with amazing, incredible young advocates. And it makes such a difference because it's too difficult, too much to do it alone. With men's suicide rates just on the rapid increase, it seems that like more help is needed than ever, really. And more understanding is required, especially amongst the young because I, I read a statistic something like four school children a week now are taking their own lives I know it's what we're seeing at the moment in schools like increases in yeah um, suicide attempts uh, increases in self-harm increases in eating disorders like not enough is being done nowhere near enough is being done again we need a revolution in like youth mental health so yeah we'll get there 
we will get there. And I think there's not nearly as much availability as there needs to be either for those in need. Absolutely. So um, I really admire the work that you both do. And I'm so, so grateful for you both opening up and being so articulate and also so generous with your time. So thank you. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word. Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. Mm-hmm.